1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6, up to and including chapter 23, and I'll read through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as the, at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law? and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting at Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, 
O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Between the years 1378 and 1417, there was a division in the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. And in fact, there were two popes. Uh, One of the popes was centered in France, in Avignon, and the other was in Rome. And they both claimed to be the legitimate pope. Well, this was quite a crisis because the Roman Catholic Church has one head, and that's the Pope, and if you have two popes, that's problematic. And so they had a council to try to solve this. And at the council, what they did is they deposed those two popes, and they elected another one. However, those two popes were not going to quit. And so now how many popes did they have? Then they had three popes. And so now they have an even bigger crisis. They eventually had another council, and then they got rid of all three, and they got another pope, and they were back down to one pope. And that was quite a crisis, and it was a crisis for simple Roman Catholics, wasn't it? Because they didn't know which was the real pope and which was the real church being led by that pope. What we have in in 1 Samuel is something like that, because we have seen so far that there have been two kings that have been anointed. So we have two anointed ones. One is the present king, Saul, and then we have the future king, David. So we have two anointed ones. Or if we are going to use the anglicized Hebrew word, we have two messiahs. Or if we're going to use the Greek anglicized word, we have two Christs. That's what Christ means. That's what anointed one means. That's what Messiah means. And I'm using these words all as the same. And so we have something of a crisis here. We have two messiahs. We have two Christs. We have two anointed ones. And the problem is they're not getting along. One of those is acting like an anti-messiah is acting like an antichrist. One of these anointed ones is trying to snuff out the other anointed one. And now, to make matters more complicated, there were other anointed ones, the priests. They were also Christs. They were also messiahs. And now they get into the mix in this conflict. And so we have a number of anointed ones that are here uh, in this this story, and it gets rather complicated. Um, What we have at the beginning is... Saul, you recall, um, Saul had a servant named Doeg. And you remember last week that David was fleeing from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. And he went to Ahimelech, the priest, and the priest helped him out. David deceived him, and the priest helped him with bread and a sword. And then Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. So Saul was there, and he took his men to task. And he tried to, to stir up some tribal rivalry. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he said, look, will the son of Jesse give to you, Benjamites, all the goodies that I've given to you? 
Will he make you commanders? Will he give you property? And notice that, that Saul seems to be on a last name basis, as one commentator said, a last name basis with everyone. He doesn't use anybody's name. He refers to the son of Jesse. He refers to my own son. He refers to the priest as the son of Ahitub. He seems to be distanced from everybody by using what would be functionally their last name. But he says, well, the son of Jesse, who is a, a Judean from Judah, Will he give you all the goodies? And notice here, we've noticed something in, in, in Saul. He seems to be getting more irrational. And it looks like, if we're going to use, use kind of modern terminology, he's bought into some really deep conspiracy theories here. He says that here. He says, why do you all conspire against me? Look at verse, uh, look at verse 8. It says, none of you discloses to me when my son makes a covenant. We remember, remember how important the covenant is between Jonathan and David. When my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Uh, and he takes them to task earlier. Let's see. Uh, verse, yeah, why have you conspired against me at the beginning of verse 8? So he's attributing to David exactly what he wants to do. He's lying in wait for David. But the way he thinks about it is David's lying in wait for him. So his thinking is getting very confused here, and he's accusing everybody of being against him. We might call this, what, paranoia. He's accusing even his, his loyal people of being against him. And none of them speak up. None of them speak up but Doeg. Do you remember Doeg? Doeg's the Edomite. So he is Saul's herdsman. He was there when Ahimelech gave the sword and the bread to David. And now he goes and he speaks up. And he gives a partial report. He says, I was there, and this is what I saw. And he, he tells the truth, but he doesn't tell the whole truth. So in verses 9 and 10, Doeg speaks up. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. That's all true, but he doesn't talk about how Ahimelech was unaware that David was fleeing uh, he, he did this all innocently, and so then the king summons Ahimelech in verse 11. And notice, notice that his conspiracy theory has already rendered Ahimelech guilty. So he's guilty before he even gets there. And, and that's kind of how conspiracy thinking works. Conspiracy thinking just kind of, it, it, it reinforces itself. Anything that might be presented to it is, is, a, is a fact in its favor, and you see that here. So he, he calls him and he says, Here now, son of Ahitu, verse 12. He says, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul says, Why have you conspired against me? Here's the conspiracy again. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and sword, inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at, at this day? Then Ahimelech says, That's not the first time I've helped him out. He's, he's one of your most faith, he's your son in law, king. He's one of your most faithful bodyguards. I help him out all the time. There's nothing new about this. So Ahimelech just tells the truth, and it's very convincing. But his fate is already sealed because of the way Saul is thinking. And he pronounces death not only on Ahimelech, but also on all his father's household. And so he turns to his servants, and he says, kill the priests. And, and so here's Ahimelech with, with all these priests and uh, anointed ones. Uh, Christ's Messiahs, and, and the king says, kill them all. Uh, verse 16, dying you shall die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Verse 16, 
Verse 17, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. But interestingly, the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now, we'll see that next week as well, that, that you ought not to lift your hand against the anointed of the Lord. These are anointed ones. These are messiahs. These are Christ. These have been anointed to the priesthood. And so the soldiers say, no, 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 they're, they're anointed ones. We're not going to touch any of these priests. But Doeg had no such scruples. So he turns to Doeg. He was an Edomite and uh, no such scruples. And he apparently very happily, he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. We're not exactly sure what an ephod was, but uh, it was part of the priestly garments. So here there were, there were 85 priests, anointed priests, and he killed them all. But not content with that, Verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, um, there's some irony here. Do you remember Saul made, he's made a number of mistakes, but he's made, he made two big mistakes. One, he, he went ahead and he, he, he had the offering made, or he offered it himself, and he lost the kingdom for himself. But then, he failed to fulfill God's commands to to exterminate the the Amalekites to wipe them all out and he spared some of them and so he lost the dynasty because of that and so we have an irony here he would not eliminate the Amalekites who were the the sworn enemies of Israel but here he does he does that to his own his own people his own town it says, no, uh, Nob was wiped out. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, sheep. He put them to the sword. There's this idea of the ban, the ban of total destruction, and, but it's, it's Israel, it's one of their own cities by their own king is being put under the ban. And so what do we have here at the end of this first episode? We have the anointed king wiping out the anointed priests. We have the anointed king continuing to act like an anti-anointed, uh, or the, the, anoint, the Christ acting like an anti-Christ. That's kind of the first episode here. And then we have a note in verse 20. But one, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, just one, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Just one of all the priests got away. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, and David recognized his responsibility because he's the one that had, had consulted Abiathar, and he, or rather Ahimelech. And, and so he said, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping." So we have just one anointed priest left, and we have one anointed king, and they team up. But they're, they're the only ones left. And we see here something interesting. We, we see that God had sent, last week, he had sent a prophet to support his anointed king, Gad. Kind of came out of nowhere. He had taken away the word of the Lord from from Saul. Samuel turned his back on Saul and walked away, and then God sends the prophet to the king, and now he sends the priest to the king. So we have the anointed king, we have the anointed priest, and we also have the prophet who are together. And we also have another interesting fact here. We have the priesthood and the kingship are really hanging by a thread at this point. 
they are down to one person each. Because as far as we know, David doesn't have any children yet. So his line depends completely on him. That The kingship is down to one person, and the priesthood has now been reduced to one person. And there's a theme that goes through the Old Testament. It's the remnant theme. And we see that theme here, that oftentimes there is a, a reduction of the people of God or of the officers of God, and it looks like sometimes they're about to be wiped out. This is not the only time when, when the line is reduced to one and it's, it's hanging by a thread. And, and this remnant theme, it, it, we see it that, that God calls Abraham and he says, I'll make your, your descendants like, like, the, like the stars of heaven, the sands on the seashore, and they become a great multitude. They're 12 tribes. And then because of the mistake of, of a king, they're reduced to two tribes. Twelve are reduced to two. And then in the exile, that, those two, many of them are sent away into exile, and many of them never come back. Who comes back? Just a remnant of the people come back. It's getting whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. And in fact, if we, if we tell the whole story, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but if we tell the whole story, it, it gets down to one. The remnant gets down to one, one faithful person, one faithful Israel, and that's Jesus Christ. He said, I am the true vine. What's the true vine? The true Israel. Israel has gotten down to one faithful person, and then from there, it's built up again. But the remnant theme is an encouragement to us. There's some hand-wringing in the United States among Christians because it looks like we're going backwards. It feels like that. It feels like the church of God is being whittled down. It feels like we're getting smaller instead of bigger, and that, that may be the case but the remnant theme reminds us that God will always, always preserve his people on earth, even when it looks like we are about to be wiped out. One, one commentator, he put this really well, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you as it was to me. He wrote this, uh, Ralph Davis, he said, Abiathar then stands as a witness to the way Yahweh, the Lord, insistently preserves a remnant of his people. The priests of Yahweh may be destroyed, but not completely destroyed. The people of God may often be put down, but never be put out. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. Now, these, uh, these anointed ones, one and one, they team up here in a city of Judah that bordered on Philistine territory named Keilah. The Philistines were attacking it. And here David inquires of the Lord, and we're not exactly sure how this works. It may have been through that ephod. It looks like it was in a later inquiry. And it looks like the ephod somehow worked as kind of a yes-no sort of thing. They could ask the Lord a question, and these are kind of yes-no questions. Shall I attack? Will I be victorious? Will they hand me over? It looks like yes, no, yes, no. And so David inquired of the Lord, received instructions. His men were kind of leery. They're, they're a ragtag outfit. You remember last? They were, they were kind of outlaws and, and desperados, and he formed them into a group. Now he says, let's go into battle against the Philistines in territory that they're controlling. And they say, uh, wait a minute. We're not quite ready for that. He inquires again, and the Lord says, go up and be victorious. And they do that. It says they, they go and they, they rescue 
the city in, uh, in verse uh, chapter 23. It says uh, in verse 5, so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And so it, it's, it's, it's good to keep these two chapters together. What did one anointed of the Lord do? He wiped out a city, his, his own city of his own people. What did the other anointed of the Lord do? He saved a city of his own people. And it may be that he inquired of the Lord. It seems like kind of a no-brainer, we might say. Okay, the city's under attack. You have some men. Why don't you go take care of the city? Well, he wasn't yet the king. And so it may be that he was saying, I have the anointing, but I'm not the king yet. Lord, should I go or should I not go? Uh, and, and the Lord says, go. And so what's the Lord doing? Putting him in the place of doing what, what the king should do. So he's, he's acting like the anointed of the Lord. And the, the actual, the, the present anointed of the Lord is acting like an anti-anointed of the Lord and even anti-Israel, anti-his own people. But then we find out something that I guess says something about human nature. Um, Saul learns where David is, and he says, I got him. I got him. It's a walled city. It's got gates and bars. He's in the city. All I need to do is surround the city and put a, uh, besiege the city, wipe out the city, another city in Israel, wipe out the city, and I got David. So he's willing to sacrifice yet another city of his own people in order to get hold of David. Well, David asks another question of, of the Lord, apparently here using the, the ephod, and he asks the question, will the men of Keilah, will they hand me over? The men of Keilah, the Keilah, they just, he just saved them. And the Lord says, yeah, yeah they hand, they'll hand you over. And so David escapes. So the inhabitants of Keilah quickly forgot what the anointed one had done who saved them. Quickly forgot. It, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it, it, it's not a phenomenon that has just disappeared. I find when professing Christians turn away from Christianity, it, it's almost as if they had amnesia, and they forget what Christ had done for them. It, it's, I've had conversations with dear friends that have turned away from the gospel, and I've, and I've, I've asked them. And it's almost as if, as if they just, their memories have been erased. They, they have no more recollection or appreciation for what the anointed one has done to save them. So what's the lesson? If you, if you want to avoid that, then don't forget. Don't forget what Christ has done for you. Think about that often. Think about what you were. Think about where you were. Think about the mercy of the Lord. Think about the grace of the Lord and how he had mercy on you and how he changed you and how he saved you. That's an antidote to amnesia, spiritual amnesia, an antidote to forgetting what the, the anointed of the Lord has done to save us. Well, then we have in the rest of chapter 23, I, I didn't read it, but we have, we have kind of a a summary of, of this whole section in verse 14. And it says, Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. 
That could summarize not just the, what's coming up here in this next section, but really this, this entire section of, of, of 1 Samuel, this kind of the third of the book, where Saul's after David, David escapes, Saul's after David, David escapes, and we're going to keep seeing these, these great escapes one after another. Here's a good summary. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Now, what we find is that David escaped once again to the wilderness, his 400 men are now 600 men, so it's growing. And uh, Saul was not able to find him, but somehow Jonathan was. Jonathan, his, his friend, was able to find him. And if you look at verse 16 of chapter 23, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Isn't that beautiful? His, his friend came. His covenanted friend came. And what did he do? He strengthened his hand in God. I need people like that. I need people like that in my life. You need people like that in your life. That's what the Church of Christ does. That's why the the body of Christ is so important. We need to do that for each other, to strengthen our hands in God. And that's what Jonathan did. And Jonathan, it's getting more and more explicit here. We've had some symbolic acts. You remember Jonathan, that when they first made a covenant, Jonathan stripped off his official armor and he gave it to David, basically saying to David, you're going to be the next king, I'm not. But here he spells it out, verse 17, and he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And then it says, verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. We've heard that before, haven't we? Now, is this a new covenant or is just this remembering the covenant, re- renewing the covenant? It looks like there's some new codicils or some new, uh, what else would you call them, uh, uh, clauses in this, this covenant. And it's explicit now that David's going to be king and Jonathan is going to be his right-hand man. And here they made a covenant. They cut a covenant before the Lord, a continuation of that covenant that they had already made. We looked at covenant in detail, but I just remind you of the importance of covenant. Uh, Some people despise covenants, especially when they want to get rid of them. Um, And they call them just a piece of paper. I've heard that, just a piece of paper. When when nations who have uh, allied themselves to each other, but it's no longer convenient, they, they conveniently just rip up the, the, the treaties that they've signed or when married couples or when members of the church or when business associates. But see, it's, covenants are not just a piece of paper. They're not just words. These are the things that make good relationships possible. Why? They're the glue that hold relationships together when it would be easier to turn away and separate. And, and we, we backed up from human covenants a couple weeks ago, and we saw that this is how God relates to us, and it's a good thing, isn't it? Because it would be easy, it would be convenient, if we can say it this way, for God to write us off. It would be convenient and easy for God to turn away from us, but he will not do that, and, and I think we can say he cannot do that. Why not? Because he covenanted with us. And he has sealed that covenant with his own blood. 
So thus the importance of covenant between God and us and the importance of the covenants we make with one another. Now, once again, at the end of chapter 23, we have the locals trying to hand David over to Saul. David moved around to elude Saul. Saul was closing in, and it gets very tense here. Now, it's tense only if you don't know the rest of the story, but if we can kind of pretend that we don't know the rest of the story, it's getting very, very tense because they're, they're the two armies basically coming together, and Saul is closing in on David, and he's about to capture him. And we're, we're biting our nails and saying, oh no, what's going to happen? And then something very, very surprising happens. Just as he was about to capture him, in verse 27, a messenger came to Saul and said, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Now, why were the Philistines able to make a raid against the land? Because Saul was out chasing David with his armies. Saul was not acting like a king, but this seems to have awakened him to his responsibility as a king. So he, 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 he cuts off his pursuit of David for now, and he goes once again to act like the king of Israel. But I want you to see how ironic this is. The Philistines were the ones who saved David. The Philistines were the means by which David was saved. And we keep seeing that sort of thing, the way God uses even his enemies to bring about his purposes and we saw very clearly last week how he used the death of Jesus Christ at the hands of lawless men to bring about the salvation of his people and we we've seen time and time again in first Samuel how the anointed figures in first Samuel are are prototypes of of Christ and in some way or another are preparing the way and and teaching us about Jesus Christ and and one of the clear things in this section is that, like David, God protected Jesus from many attempts on his life, didn't he? When he was an infant, it was Herod that, that massacred a whole area like, like Saul did in order to try to wipe out this one who wanted to be called or was called, and legitimately so, the king of the Jews. So throughout Jesus' life, God, God protected him from, from being killed by his enemies, but as you know, in the end, Jesus gave himself up to his enemies without a struggle so that they could put him to death. And you see, that's a, that's a, a problem in the, in, the, in the minds of many in Jesus' day. If he's really the Messiah, God protects his Messiah from being handed over to the enemies. Look at David. If there's not a message here that's clear, it's that the most clear one is that God protects his Messiah from death. And so if Jesus was not protected from death, then how could he possibly be the Messiah? But you see, there's a twist to the story. God did protect his Holy One from death. He did protect his Holy One from seeing corruption. And how did he do that? By doing something greater than keeping him from dying, by raising him from the dead. You see, David was protected for really a little while, and then he died. And as Peter points out on the day of Pentecost, his, his bones saw corruption. His body saw corruption. But Jesus died, and he did not see corruption. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. God does, in fact, rescue his anointed one from destruction. 
and we see that in the resurrection. But the result is that he's able to do much more than David was. David was able to save a city of Israel from destruction by the Antichrist at that time. Jesus, because God has raised him from the dead, is able to save anyone who believes in him from sin, from condemnation, from eternal death, from Satan, and from hell. So what's the takeaway? Well, it's the takeaway. Trust in that one, that Messiah, that anointed one, that, that God has allowed to be overcome by his enemies and then whom he has raised from the dead and and don't get spiritual amnesia never forget never forget what the anointed one has done to save you by dying and rising again let's pray our god we thank you for jesus the greater son of david the one who was overcome eventually by his enemies but whom you raised from the dead and lord i pray that you would Never let us forget what you have done, covenanting with us to save us from our sins through your anointed one. Let us never forget Jesus' death and our salvation through him. Lord, I pray for all of us that, that our faith would, would never fade, that our, our memories would never grow dim, that we would, if we don't remember many other things in life, that, that we would never forget what the anointed one has done to save us from our sins. And we pray this in his name. Amen.